Oh, I've made it back to the microphone once again. Hello, everyone. Now, I'll level with you guys in summarized form. Episodes began after an absence back in May, followed by another episode in June. After the June release, my body began to send me some very clear signals that made me feel very physical symptoms. I was heavy. I felt physically weighed down. Energy, non-existent. And probably the most alarming thing for me was a complete lack, like a total lack of creative motivation. It was completely gone. It was like a candle had blown out. So I dipped out. I've been deeply involved in grief work. Some folks call it shadow work. I've heard the term death work lately, which I think I really like that term. It really feels like that. I've been really involved in that anyway for the past several months, and I've never known more love and pain and healing and opportunity in my life. I have energy again, I'm motivated, and that fire that went out is ignited again. So I say all of this to encourage those of you out there who are feeling heavy, feeling weighted down, feeling a hole where your motivation and your passion used to go. Face that pain and do that work. Running from that only prolongs that pain and it further damages your spirit. You are strong enough and you can surprise yourself once you've actually given yourself the forgiveness and the chance. Okay. So let's take a deep breath. Shake it off. (laughs) Now, what do you say we actually have a podcast episode? Yes, I say yes. Our guest today is a Salmon and Steelhead Advocacy Fellow for the Idaho Conservation League. His name is Mr. Mitch Cutter. He's an absolute wealth of knowledge on the salmon situation in Idaho and was gracious enough to meet with me and share all kinds of history and context to what he says is an actual population collapse in action. He was very patient with my layman self and was a great sport in joining in with some of my more open-ended, heady questions towards the end. It was a great discussion. I enjoyed it very much. And so without further ado, welcome to the first of eight brand new winter season episodes. This one is number 18, Idaho's Salmon and the Recovery Ahead.
So let's, uh, speaking of just beautiful experiences and everything like that, I mean, this is a good opportunity at the, just the start of all this to, sure. to get to, um, just kind of get into the feel for things and get to know you a bit. And, you know, we've, mm-hmm. we've never spoken before this, so this is kind of a fun, <laughs> like a cold, cold interview yeah. <laughs> right away. And, and so, you know, let's get an idea uh, about, you know, what got you to what you're doing right now and everything. So, you know, what's what's an experience in your life that that you can remember that kind of shifted you in the direction you're moving now? What got you to what you're doing? And yeah, just kind of give us an idea of of where you came from and where you're at a snapshot. Sure. So um, I'm a Northwester at heart. Um, I was born in Bend, Oregon, and then went to college at Whitman College, which is over right over in Walla Walla. So pretty right. close to where you're at. Um, and then spent a couple of years there at a, at a job doing sort of energy related stuff and then quickly sort of hooked into the natural resources world doing in what I'm doing now at the Idaho Conservation League here in, here in Idaho. Um, sort of, I guess what put me on that track was that never ending sort of love for this region and this place and not just for the Pacific Northwest, but also for the interior West and the, mm-hmm. the Western United States in general. Um, it is, I think one of the most remarkable places <laughs> on the planet and one that should be protected and conserved so that other people can experience that forever, Definitely. you know? Um, yeah. and so sort of a, an early experience that I had that really put me on that track was in college at Whitman, they have this program, uh, an academic program called Semester in the West. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or not. But no, I haven't. It goes out, it goes out every other every other fall, so the falls of even years, the fall semester, um, and it is exactly what it what the title is. It's a you spend the full semester all throughout the interior west of the U.S. Um, and Mexico a little bit, sort of traveling to a new place every three or five days and camping out on public lands, listening to the people who actually do work on, on, um, in this landscape, right? So environmentalists, ecologists, writers, um, politicians, sometimes, uh, ranchers, mm. miners, etc. like speaking to all of these people who actually do the work, <laughs> um, and oh, getting amazing. all different sides of the story. And so the first place actually that we went on semester in the West when I was a student on the program was, um, Willowa County down in very Northeast Oregon. Uh, which is a place that I've known for a long time. My family has sort of some roots up there. Then I, I, I spent a lot of time there before, but on this time, you know, it was in an academic context and we heard from this group that's named Wallawa Resources. And Wallawa Resources is a nonprofit uh, natural resource stewardship group is what they call themselves. Mm. And basically they were formed to take Wallawa County, which is a place that had been just decimated by, um, sort of the the stopping of timber harvest around the Northwest because of the listing of spotted owl and salmon as well, actually. Mm. Um, a place that had really lost a lot of its identity as, as a timber county um, and really took that place and sort of started to not remake it, but to, to recreate that economy and that ecology around something new. Um, sort of how to manage forests in a sustainable way and to continue to, you know, to do timber harvest and things, but not in the same unsustainable or sort of rampant way that it had been done before. And so they've done a lot of work on sort of making connections in the community, um, getting some logging going again through the forest service um, and making other sort of natural resource stewardship projects happen. So conserving land through conservation easements, um, doing a lot of like day camps and education as well. Uh, You might know that the 
rural education is in a real problem right now in this country and especially in the West. Um, and so we'll allow resources to really to sort of supplement <laughs> a big problem. Yeah. Wow. Uh, in that, in that. <laughs> yes. I have certainly heard. Yes. I'm just being a little bit facetious for a moment, yeah, but yes. For sure. <laughs> no, so basically, I mean, the, Wallowa County went down to a four-day school week um, because of a lack of funding from the state and from the federal government. And so, you know, that leaves a lot of parents, working families, <laughs> having to deal with kids for, you know, a, a fifth day of the week when they're when the parents are working. And so right. Wallowa Resources stepped in and got funding and hired staff to basically run, um, I don't want to call them day camps, but like a, a Friday day school for all of the students in the county, or at least most of them, um, up to a certain age where they, you know, can't look after themselves. Um, and so that they provided that for that whole community and people took them up on it. <laughs> wow. Um, and so, you know, that's just one of these like innovative solutions that I think will out, will our resources at least really found and uh, an innovative, innovative solutions to what in the end was an, a natural resource related problem. Um, and hearing about that group and the great work that they've done in a place that I love really convinced me to, try to do similar work in, in other places that I love, you know? Um, and so that's kind of what got me onto my track with salmon, steelhead, energy, and other, other related things um, that I work on now. Um, really, it is trying to find innovative or comprehensive solutions to these big natural resource issues that have kind of, just like timber did, sort of vexed the Northwest for a long time. So speaking of then, so... You've been doing this work for a bit, and I'm sure that, you know, outside of ICL, I'm sure that there's there's other, um, you know, things that you've looked at, both within ICL and outside of ICL. It's obviously something that you're passionate about. So mm -hmm. I have to I have to confess, I, uh, you know, I've been a sustainability kind of enthusiast sort of all across the board and with no specific industry in mind for a long time. So what's interesting is that I I get sort of a gap with salmon and a lot of fish management. And I don't know much about <laughs> our I was realizing this before our discussion today that I don't really have much of an idea about our situation here. And so I'll play complete audience today. Um, so, so catch us up. I mean, we're in you know, I'm I'm reading, I'm reading. Uh, have you ever read Dune? Yeah, I have. I just read it uh, kind of end of last year, sort of in preparation for the movie. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's the hot obviously, stuff right now. Obviously delayed. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm. Year, you yeah, say yeah, delayed. Don't feel too bad. I'm actually reading the book for the first time right now. Um, I've never <laughs> read it before, and I wanted to be able to like be prepared for the movie, so I'm <laughs> reading the book. About halfway through it, and what's funny about Dune, anyone who's ever read it, I know it's massively popular at this point, but like, it, it starts out pretty abruptly. You're in the middle of this whole situation at the very beginning of it. And so, sure. for me, part of the situation of like diving into the knowledge of the salmon and steelhead situation, especially in Idaho specifically, is a bit daunting. So help, help, <laughs> help catch us up. We're in the center or at the beginning, I guess if it's Dune, we're at the beginning, but what's the, where's the, what's our situation here in Idaho as far as what's up with salmon? What's the big deal anyway? Sure. Um, I know that's a I lot, but. To start, <laughs> to start really in the middle of things, like, and I've said this to groups before, 
is what the current situation with salmon and steelhead, especially in Idaho, is kind of what a collapse looks like. Like we, mm. the Northwest has gone from, you know, pre about 1850, maybe like early 19th century. Um, we're talking about a total of 15, 16 million fish total salmon and steelhead um, of different species coming back every year into the Columbia river base. So that's not just Idaho, that's, you know, Washington, Oregon, British Columbia, Alberta, a little bit of Montana, and even down into Nevada and Utah as well. Actually, um, there are tributaries down in very Northern Nevada and Utah and Wyoming, uh, that all go into the Columbia river basin. Um, so right. this is a massive watershed, right? And so 15 million fish coming back every year, um, and in the snake river basin, which goes, you know, obviously from, from the, the confluence of the snake and the Columbia is in sort of South central Washington near the tri cities. Um, and then, the snake goes kind of over east, over towards the Idaho border, turns south and forms the border between Oregon and Idaho for a good long time, and then kind of turns back to the east and heads over towards Wyoming. Um, we're talking about 2.5 million fish that came back every year into that specific part of the Columbia. Gosh, um, just an enormous landmass too. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. Um, and fish were going all the way from, you know, from sort of that south central Washington that I was talking about near Walla Walla. Um, up into central Idaho, sort of into the salmon and Clearwater rivers, which is kind of where they're where they are now. But they were also going down into eastern Oregon on uh, on the John Day, on the Malheur, on other rivers there, and then even into like sort of south central Idaho and Nevada. So like all the way back to Twin Falls is sort of where they stopped at, at Shoshone Falls. Actually, is was the natural blockage for their migration. Um, and so fish, these fish were everywhere, providing. Um, nutrients to ecosystems all over the place. And these are nutrients that they're getting from the ocean <laughs> and yeah. bringing back up to the pretty, pretty, pretty sparse places. <laughs> There's not a whole lot else ecologically going on in these places without salmon. <laughs> um, wow. And so, and this was, you know, all of this was a real stronghold for especially the spring and summer Chinook salmon, which are also known as the King salmon. These are the, the big ones. Um, back in the day, we're talking about fish that could be a hundred pounds and, pushing six feet long. <laughs> um, these are absolutely massive fish when they come back that are just providing a huge amount to the ecosystems they live in. Um, and so that's what we used to have. We used to have, you know, about 2.5 million fish, including a million spring and summer Chinook. Um, and last year, no, I'm sorry, this year, I'll tell you that we had 7,000 wild uh, spring and summer Chinook come back to Idaho. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, so, you know, you can, you can do the math on that one. That's less than 1% of the historical total. Um, yeah. Oh my God. Part of that story is that a lot of that, a lot of that habitat has been blocked off by, by dams and by other factors. And so there's a lot of that historical range that is just no longer accessible right now for, for the same kind of migration. Um, and wow. so like the, the, the more realistic recovery goal that the state of Idaho and others have set is 160,000, uh, wild spring and summer Chinook salmon. And so, you know, even at 7,000, you can see we're still a long way away from getting that, <laughs> you know, we're about 5% of that recovery goal. Uh, I mean, do you, I mean, I know there's like a number of things to look at as far as like causes dams. Absolutely. We're going to talk about dams in a second, but mm -hmm. with, I mean, what are some of the other common causes other than like dams that have been seen? Like, is overfishing? Like, what what are we talking about? Sure. So, whenever sort of fish people 
think about salmon and steelhead, it usually breaks down into a, a system of factors that we call the four H's, um, and you can add a P into there as well. So the four H's are hydro or hydroelectricity, um, hatcheries, harvest, habitat, and then the P, if you want to add it in, is predation. Um, but sometimes that just gets factored into harvest because it's just a different kind of harvest. I was right? just going to say, yeah, it depends on how you define predation, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then other people will like to say there's also an O, which is the ocean, but that's just another habitat because these fish, you know, will right. start their lives off in these upstream tributaries way up high, spend a year or so there, and then migrate down to the ocean, spend, you know, anywhere from one to five years in the ocean, and then migrate back. Um, and so they actually spend the bulk of their lives out in the ocean. Um, which in many ways does make it sort of the prime habitat, but a lot of the limiting factors are upstream. <laughs> uh, right. And so, you know, do with ocean what you will, but it is, I, I would consider it part of the habitat sort of question. So if we, if we sort of break each one of those down, um, you know, if we think about uh, harvests, salmon and steelhead have always been harvested by humans, um, whether they were the Native Americans who historically lived here um, or the, the Europeans who came along and started harvesting them more. And that was one of the initial big causes for the decline in salmon and steelhead. That's why I say, you know, about 1850 is the, num is the historical number. Pre-1850, there weren't that many Europeans here. Salmon and steelhead were being harvested, but still in a sustainable way, I would say. Um, mm. And it's really, it was really the addition of, you know, a different group of people and a much larger group of people that caused those initial declines um, and, and the first sort of collapse in the populations. Um, that impact of just over-harvest um, combined with a lot of habitat degradation up high in the tributaries. So, you know, people building towns and people building homesteads and uh, setting up mines and uh, harvesting timber and other things like that. All of that sort of contributed to big degradation of some of these, like what we now think of as fairly pristine um, rivers. So like the Salmon River, the Clearwater, et cetera. Um, right. Cause I mean, there was, there gosh, were people, there were people spread all over the place. Yeah. And I didn't think <laughs> and so about the mines and all the, everything being put into the water that wasn't already there. That's a good point. Yeah. And also another, another big factor in that was actually the fairly system, systemic eradication of beaver. Um, beaver are a big factor in, rivers all across the west um and right i tell you you could do an entire you could do an entire series of this podcast about beavers if you wanted to <laughs> you know it's funny you say that because i have so i mean cause, you know being in idaho there's a lot of talk around idaho folk um <laughs> about different waterways and how beavers have you know just caused all kinds of different depending on where it's at all any issue here but there's, there's all these questions about how to properly handle beavers. We know that we need them, but at the same time, they can really be a problem. You know, funny enough, it kind of sounds not in the exact same way, but it, it is sort of an interesting similarity to the conversation around wolves in the way that we're like, we know that we need them, but at the same time, in certain situations, they can be a legitimate nuisance. But so how to cross that... <laughs> So I, f I find that conversation interesting. Yeah, we could totally do a whole thing about that, 100%. <laughs> and I'm not, I will say I'm not your beaver guy. I know, I know enough to be dangerous about beavers. Uh, <laughs> there are, there are <laughs> experts aplenty across, I mean, even if up in Spokane, across north central Washington, um, and down in Oregon as well, who have done a ton of work with beaver restoration, who I'd be you know, happy to connect you with. Absolutely. Uh, Let's do that sometime. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but beavers, you know, beavers, 
receivers were important for salmon. They remain important for salmon because of their ability to build dams that hold back water and create sort of uh, perennial complex habitat for spawning and rearing of juvenile or baby or baby fish. Um, and so, you know, when beavers were all eradicated, that led to a lot of changes to streams and waterways all around the Northwest. Um, some that, you know, wouldn't get solved for another 120 years. Um, and so that sort of combination of overharvest and habitat degradation was really those two things combined were responsible for the, the initial collapse of salmon and steelhead um, in the, you know, through the late 19th century and into the early 20th. Um, wow. So those two things kind of working together. Yeah. And then what happened was, you know, on that collapsed, pop, that, that already collapsed population, um, or certainly severely decreased population, um, came the sort of the hydropower, elect, <laughs> the hydropower dam building era. Now, yeah. now we're talking about some of the, int- now we're getting into the more interesting. Tell us about dams. I mean, what, how exactly have dams affected fish populations? Because you were talking about how a lot of habitation, like habitat is being essentially restricted now in, in many ways. I know that some dams have attempted to have like ways for the fish to get by and there's different technologies involved. So yeah, give us an idea of how dams have affected all of this. Sure. So the dam building era sort of started in the Pacific Northwest, at least in a major way, um, the big main stem federal dams that I'm talking about with sort of the dawn, not the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, but sort of the dawn of the Great Depression, actually. Um, the first big federal dam built was Bonneville Dam um, down very close to Portland on the Columbia. Um, and that was constructed in sort of the late 1930s, early 1940s um, to, to put people to work and to provide power for the Northwest, which as a region was really not, it was still wild. Like think about all these rural places out in sort of, random random towns across the across the region and that these places were not electrified yet and there was no private company that was willing to come in and you know send out wires to a place like Walla Walla or a place like Salmon Idaho or something like yeah, that and so very wild um, just sort of just like Franklin Roosevelt did in the Tennessee Valley the Tennessee Valley Authority um, he set up the Bonneville Power Administration or BPA which um, doesn't own the dams in the Northwest, but owns the power that they produce, the federal dams at least. And its job was to have this power connect all of these rural places all around the region and connect them to these big centralized dams that were going to be all along the Columbia, the Snake, the Willamette, and other rivers here in the region. Um, and to do that at cost. So not making a profit on it, not trying to rip anybody off, but to, to electrify these places because it would benefit the, the economy of the region. Gotcha. Uh, and so Bonneville was the first. It was followed by another, good Lord, what is it, another about 30 dams in the federal system here in the Northwest. Um, the main ones that we think about are about 10, of the really big ones that are on the Columbia and on the lower Snake River um, over in eastern Washington. And so when they started building these dams, they weren't, I mean, these engineers and fish biologists and policymakers, they weren't unaware of the consequences that that would have for fish. <laughs> they certainly knew that putting a big concrete impediment in the river <laughs> was going to have a <laughs> pretty big impact on the on what fish actually remained. And I actually have this great quote right here from the B.M. Brennan, who was the director of Washington's Department of Fisheries. And this is about Grand Coulee Dam, which was built in 1938, sort of up in north central Washington there. Okay. Um, and he said, 
There was a feeling that the vast economic gains to be derived from this project, project being the dam, should not be endangered by consideration of the fish. It was felt in some quarters that the fish were not worth the money it would take to preserve them. Uh, <laughs> and so that is just a picture perfect. Wow. <laughs> the that. fish were that not. Many, I love many, the verbiage there. <laughs> yeah. That's a picture perfect uh, sort of image of what many people thought about fish runs and their importance back then. Right. Um, and how those how those fish runs compared to the value of these big hydroelectric projects that were gonna revolutionize the region, right? And you know, to be fair, like those those dams did in fact revolutionize the region. Um, they led to a massive industry here in the Northwest for Boeing and for aluminum smelters and other things that came to exist through the course of World War II and thereafter. Um, right. It's been argued that Grand Coulee Dam, because it sent some of its power to the Hanford site, uh, led to the you know the development of the atomic of the first atomic weapons um, and the eventual end of World War II. Right. Oh, I didn't know that. And so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of pride in the idea that these dams helped America win a war. <laughs> wow. And that pride still still remains to a large degree. Do you think that there's this collective pride that's shared? Can you feel that around those industries? You think or what do you have you experienced that before? I think so. I mean, I think I don't know if it's the same pride in winning a war or whatever. Like those are sort of historical, cultural things that many that sort of uh, some older folks might sort of attach themselves to. Yeah, um, values for this for the system that was built. But I do think that people in the hydropower industry and in the in the electric utility industry that uh, you know uses the power generated at these dams, um, there is a real pride in the idea that. Hydropower alone, so they say, is sort of valuable of all of the carbon, all of the non-carbon generating resources has like these real characteristics that they love. In other words, like it is, hydropower can be turned on and off or up and down at the flip of a switch. Uh, and it is on as long as the rivers are running. Um, and you know, the, the refrain from these folks is that the sun isn't always shining and the wind isn't always blowing, uh, referring to solar and wind energy, but the rivers are pretty much always flowing. Um, and so they argue for hydropower as a real sort of baseload part of whatever our post-carbon sort of energy world is going to look like. Um, yeah. And they argue for that sort of special role for it. So it's it's not just a historical thing, but they, it does have value for them um, as part of the sort of future resource mix. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, it's a technology that, I mean, they have a great case, I think. You know, it's a technology that already exists as opposed to something that theoretically could exist. And I think that that, it, well, and with like the whole conversation around atomic energy, nuclear um, energy, that's a great conversation that I hope to have more often in the near future here. But, sure. you know, that's a tougher one. That's a tougher case to make than say hydroelectric dams, because we've already got dams that we already know it works. And mm -hmm. it would be easy enough to expand that kind of thing. I would think, especially since we already have a good understanding of how those energy systems work in practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. I think I, I think to your point, like it's important to maintain the connections between hydroelectric power and its like its remaining ecological <laughs> sort of problems, right? Like, I mean, you'll hear many people say that each form of energy generation has its own <laughs> ecological impacts, right? Right. And so it's it's impossible to remove something something even like solar power from its ecological impacts on something like desert tortoise, right? And so in the same way, we can't remove 
these particular hydroelectric dams here in the Northwest from their impacts on salmon, steelhead, and other anadromous fish and communities. Um, in the same way that you can't remove, you know, the, the huge impacts of something like a coal-fired power plant or a natural gas plant. Oh gosh, yeah. Um, but you know, a lot of the same arguments around like the the solidness of the power or the ability to turn it up and down or on and off have been made and are being made actively about coal-fired coal power plants and natural gas plants. Um, there's a lot of folks who say we can't get rid of these these generators because we don't have the technology to replace them, that flavor of power in the same way. How do we, as a culture and as an energy sort of sector, move away from these ideas about big centralized generators being essential for the system, right? So for decades now, we've relied on these like hydroelectric dams, coal-fired power plants, all these big things that exist in this one place and send their power out all over. <laughs> Versus this new, you know, the new idea is sort of a distributed energy system. Um, you have solar on people's rooftops. You have these smaller solar and wind farms everywhere. You have energy storage systems everywhere. You have energy conservation measures in houses all over the houses and businesses all over the place. Um, and all of those things can add up to a, an energy grid that remains reliable and remains, you know, affordable and non-carbon generating. Um, and I think it really is a it is a cultural change to move away from these big, you know, quote unquote, dependable uh, individual big resources away into this sort of distributed future. Uh, I, I think in bigger ways than we think, than we realize. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. Well, I think I think it's happening, you know, uh, faster than anybody would like it to. Oh, for sure. Must, right. Because it must. Because right. it must. Yeah. Um, so and, that... You know, as we as we think about this sort of energy transformation, like I want to I want to make sure we link this back to salmon. Like, Absolutely, yeah. You know, we are we we see ICL and many of our partners see the harms that have been done by dams to salmon and steelhead, and we also understand that taking away some of those harms, aka by breaching or bypassing these dams, um, is a way to is a way and the only way to restore these fish back to abundance in the Snake River and in Idaho. Um, and so, you know, our, our conversations about how to save fish are fundamentally linked to conversations about how do we transform the energy system? Because we have to be real in knowing that these dams do provide something to the energy system. Um, nobody's saying that they can be just taken out and not replaced with anything else. <laughs> right. Um, but starting to think about, you know, how do we replace them is a real sort of that connects this inherently to this, to this issue of energy transformation, right? I mean, once upon a time, there were fish advocates who said, well, we'll just, re you know, remove these four dams on the lower snake river and replace them with a natural gas fired plant. Um, and that'll be that it's the same kind of power. It could, it could be done for about the same price and that's just what we're going to do. But because of the, you know, the far reaching ramifications of the climate change movement, um, and other concerns around carbon, like clearly that is not something that <laughs> any rational environmentalist can really advocate for anymore, right? Like mm -hmm. we can't, <laughs> we're not going to add more carbon emitting resources onto the system <laughs> right? Um, to replace these, these mostly non-carbon emitting dams. Um, and so we do have to think about what is a, a non-carbon <laughs> emitting way to replace, to replace them. Well, that, that said, I mean, what's, what is, is there anything in that realm in terms of what Idaho Conservation League is like? What what's being focused on at Idaho Conservation League in relation to all of this right now? 
Yeah, so I would say, I mean, our big focus over the last oh year, what has it been? About well, we'll say about nine months, um, ever since February, has been uh, a proposal that was put across by Congressman Mike Simpson, who's from Idaho here, a Republican, um, called the Columbia Basin Initiative, is what he called it, and. That proposal, which is not legislation at this point, um, was basically to uh, allocate about $33.5 billion to breaching these lower Snake River dams and replacing the services that they provide, among a few other things. And so, you know, about half of that price tag was for this energy replacement bit alone. Um, Mm. Mike Simpson's whole focus is sort of making all communities whole. And so that means you know, communities who depend on this hydroelectric energy or this energy from the Bonneville Power Administration all over the region. Um, and so as part of his proposal, uh, that $16 billion would get used to construct new energy generation facilities and, you know, construct the transmission lines that are required to actually bring those into the system. Um, wow. $16 billion. So That is... Go ahead. I'm just... Sixteen billion. I'm just wowing over the number. <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a big number. <laughs> Which probably isn't as much as it sounds like. For me, it's hard to fathom even what a billion is. But you know, <laughs> sounds like a lot. The way, the way, the way that we think about it is, you know, all of Mike Simpson's proposal is what it is. It's thirty-three and a half billion dollars. But he also saw basically immediately upon releasing it was that. President Biden and the, and the Democrats at a national level were planning to enact this, you know, this big bipartisan infrastructure framework that would be, you know, a trillion dollars plus. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so when you think about thirty-three and a half billion in the context of a trillion or more, <laughs> it's like, no, yeah, it seems like um, a lot smaller than <laughs> what I originally it, thought. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's just a small piece. And you know, if if this package is going to get passed anyways, then the Northwest may as well get its piece of it, right? Absolutely. Do something, do something positive for fish, for energy, and for all these communities um, that depend on this river system and everything that it provides. And so that was, that was something that he latched onto when he released this proposal and something that we started advocating for as well was how do we get this proposal into the bipartisan infrastructure framework um, or into some other infrastructure bill that was enacted this year. And I'm talking mostly about the, the budget reconciliation sort of social infrastructure bill that is, I think, still under discussion. Um, clearly, uh, that did not happen. Um, we did mm. not get the Columbia Basin Initiative into either one of those two pieces of legislation. Um, and so our focus is still on making sure that legislation happens, but it's just got to go through a different vehicle now, right? Like, right. in a way, because of the big infrastructure package, it was sort of like jumping the line um, on the federal sort of legislation queue. Uh, you know, it was an easy vehicle that seemed like it had a lot of momentum to get to get passed. Um, and something that was a fairly natural fit for this Columbia Basin initiative, right? And so now, with those with that with those legislation with those pieces of legislation passed, we are sort of moving into how do we get this passed either as a standalone or in some other sort of bigger bill. Um, and that's that's sort of our current focus of work. Awesome. I mean, that's where, what kind of, I mean, how do you, how do you organize the footwork for something like that? I mean, obviously you've got to have folks that are communicating with different folks involved with different bureaucratic groups and stuff like that. But I mean, like what's the, I guess what I'm wondering is what's the variation of fields that you've got to look at 
for personnel for something like that? Sure. Yeah. So um, a lot of it goes through the political side of things, right? So we are, I mean, if we're trying to get this passed through federal legislation, then we are inherently depending on the sort of the Northwest congressional delegation to, to get this done. Um, so Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Montana um, as well are the sort of the four Northwest states. And so we are sort of as part of a much bigger coalition of nonprofit groups and in, in sort of sport fishing industry groups um, working on convincing the members of the delegation that this is a problem that needs to be solved and needs to be solved very quickly. Um, and I'm proud to say that uh, some of them at least seem to be taking that really, really seriously. So just about a few weeks ago, um, Patty Murray, who's a Democrat, Democratic senator over in Washington, and Jay Inslee, um, the governor over there, mm-hmm. both said that they are dedicated to solving this specifically Snake River salmon problem um, over the next about seven months. Um, they're calling this the salmon action plan, that they're going to look into this whole situation and evaluate, you know, can we and how can we replace the services of these lower Snake River dams in some other way? And then once we reach that conclusion, you know, make recommendations and write legislation to do just that. Um, and that's all supposed to be wrapped up by July of next year is sort of the, the due date that they have. Um, and so, you know, a lot of our energy is focused on those discussions and trying to convince those two um, that they should move forward and trying to sort of show them that Representative Simpson's proposal is a great first step for what they're doing. And in the end, that whatever they propose might look a whole lot like what Simpson proposed as well. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, if they've got... Fundamentally, he, he's already reached that conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a nice mentality walking into it, at least. At least you know that they're willing to kind of work to some extent bend around if they have to. It certainly seems that way. Yeah. And I think, you know, to go along with that, um, I think that a lot of our work is both, you know, on, on sort of the grassroots advocacy side, trying to really show everybody in the region, the significance of this issue, um, for salmon, for killer whales out in the Pacific ocean, which we haven't talked about yet. Um, and also for, for tribes, for the Northwest Native American tribes who have been dealt an injustice, um, by the construction of this entire system and by the loss of the salmon and steelhead that they used to depend on. But I want to say, so that's the grassroots side. On the grass sort of top side, or like, working with industry interests. Um, the main ones that we care about are, you know, the energy folks, uh, both the Bonneville Power Administration and the electric utilities that are connected to them. Um, but also uh, different industries like wheat growers and farmers and barge companies who use the Lower Snake River to transport grain all the way from Lewiston, Idaho, out to the Pacific Ocean. Um, and also for irrigators and other people who just sort of live in the region, people who use water in the reservoirs to water their fields or their orchards, um, people who recreate on these big reservoirs, lakes that are created by these dams. Um, all of these people are folks who would be impacted by breaching the dams, right? And so, you know, I think our narrative is that this is a, this situation with salmon and steelhead is going to come to a head and change is coming and these dams eventually are going to come out. Uh, yeah. either because legislation gets it done or because they age out of being an economic way to generate power uh, or by the order of a court somewhere. And so 
really our question to them is, do you want to be a decision maker in creating your own future? Or do you want your future to be created for you? Oh, uh, wow. That's how we, that's how we see it is. And this is, you know, my, this is from directly from representative Simpson. Uh, he's seen things like the timber wars come down to the spotted owl being listed under the endangered species act. And then all of a sudden timber harvests on federal lands were, you know, illegal <laughs> to a large degree, um, certainly stopped in a lot of communities. And he's seen places, and this includes Wallowa County that I was talking about at the start of the hour, like includes places like that. We, there are rural economies everywhere that died because timber harvest went away. Um, and so he is trying to avoid a similar situation where, you know, the dams are breached, the services go away and people get left behind as a result. Um, right. So he's trying to, get in front of all of that, provide them the infrastructure investment that they need to make their communities whole, while also making Native American and other communities whole by providing reliable, sustainable runs of fish. Gosh, that's, what a challenge. I mean, speaking, have you, (laughs) have you, um, in terms of working, like speaking of working with the native population. I mean, the native population in Idaho, I mean, even just the Coeur d'Alene tribe has had such an impact and has been impacted hugely. Are there any stories that you'd like to just share about experiences that you've had during your time with ICL working with the native populations here? Yeah, sure. So, um, this is a pretty recent one. Um, about two weeks ago now, maybe a little less than that, um, me and some other staff got a chance to go up to Pettit Lake, which is sort of right in the heart of central Idaho. Um, it's, a, it's just off of the Salmon River, right as it reaches its headwaters, sort of just south of Stanley. Um, if you oh, know Stanley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, that whole basin, the, the Stanley Basin or the Sawtooth Valley, uh, used to be a home to Snake River sockeye salmon, which are a different species of salmon that has been endangered for 30 years now, actually. Um, and the main program that is benefiting sockeye salmon is at Redfish Lake. That's just downstream and that's run by the, run by the state of Idaho, but the Shoshone Bannock tribes, uh, which are, who are based over on the Fort Hall reservation in East Idaho, um, have been doing this program at Pettit Lake to reintroduce sockeye salmon into that system after they were, pretty much extirpated in the mid 1980s extirpated meaning they that that, that population went extinct <laughs> right um, and so you know after sockeye got listed under the endangered species act in 1991 um and then a few years later the, the tribes really wanted a, uh, a sockeye program of their own and so they started and reintroduced this population into pettit lake and they have done absolutely monumental work to ensure the safety and the security of, of that population um, they've done things like creating better habitat for the fish um, back up in the lake itself and in the tribute in the streams and creeks that get to it um, by doing things like purchasing water rights um, and doing some work with water chemistry to, to make sure there's enough nutrients for these fish when they're growing up um, they've mm. done a lot of work with uh, with hatcheries to sort of ensure that there's always enough fish for the genetic the continued genetic diversity of the species so even all of even though all of these Sockeye salmon went away. They used some fish from Redfish Lake, and they used some uh, other native kokanee salmon, which are kind of an offshoot of sockeye salmon, um, to sort of build this genetic diversity pool back up again so that if all the sockeye salmon were to again go extinct, they would maintain that genetic diversity for the future and be able to reintroduce the fish again. Mm. Uh, And so 
they have really created a, a safeguard or an insurance policy against um, future big events that might take out these fish again. Um, and they've done a lot to go from you know zero fish coming back to Pettit Lake in the early 1990s to I think they had 38 uh, last year. <laughs> oh my back. God, <laughs> 38. You know, 38. 38 still sounds like a, like a pretty small number, <laughs> right? <laughs> like that's, that's double digits. Um, and that is, you know, just one heat wave or some other sort of bad event away from, from extinction again. But it is, you know, obviously an, an infinite percent increase on what was previously there. Um, right. But, what, the, but what, those, what those biologists also know is that regardless of how much they do in the basin and in Pettit Lake to get these fish back, they're still sending these fish, you know, every year they send these fish out into the stream, into the Salmon River, which eventually dumps into the snake, and those fish will have to go through eight dams to get out to the ocean. They'll spend a couple years in the ocean and then have to go back through eight dams. And as a result of all of that migratory pathway, um, by the time they come back, less than 1% of the fish that left are coming back. And what I also know is that to create a sustainable or growing population, they need at least 4% of those fish to come back. And right now they're still at one and nothing they do in the basin is going to significantly change that. They're on, you know, what I would call life support. They continue to need sort of interference from humans, from the tribes and from the state of Idaho to stay alive. Um, and if they didn't have, <laughs> if, that, if all that work hadn't been done over the last 30 years, then we wouldn't have Snake River Sockeye anymore. Um, and these are the fish that, give the Salmon River its name. These are the fish that give Redfish Lake its name. Sockeye turn a pretty <laughs> a pretty robust red color uh, right. when they get ready to spawn. And so that, people talk about how Redfish Lake used to be just teeming with thousands and thousands of fish and turning the, the water of the lake red <laughs> with how many there were. Um, and that was true in, in Redfish and Pettit and in a few other lakes up there as well. Um, and so that's what we've lost. And that's what we're, you know, slowly kind of starting to get back but we're still nowhere close to moving the needle on that. No kidding. It makes me think of the buffalo and the stories that are told about how far, you know, you could see like seas of buffalo, <laughs> basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, it, it, it's akin to that. Like this is in the same way that hunting buffalo, you know, took out, <laughs> uh, you know, 99% of them back in the late 19th century. Right. Um, Which is difficult it's a, to it's really... A very similar story. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to even wrap your head around that. Because, I mean, we've never even experienced what that even looks like, having that many buffalo. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's, yeah. Going back to what, you, what we were talking about at the start, like, that's, this is the collapse I'm talking about. Like, this used to be right. one of the most abundant, wealthy, biggest fisheries in the world. Like, the Columbia River was one of the primary <laughs> contributors to all of the salmon and steelheads that live in the Pacific Ocean. Um, and this, and it remains, I will say, like especially in Idaho, some of the best habitat for these fish through the oncoming era of climate change. Um, this is some of the most, you know, the wildest and highest elevation uh, lakes and streams up in central Idaho that we have anywhere in the lower 48. And so, you know, if we want a bulwark or an insurance policy against the future warming of the planet, um, then we should be prioritizing Snake River salmon as sort of a, a salmon stronghold, if you will. Mm. Well, and if you look at Snake River, and, and I'll say this last point before we move on to the next, like when when you look at Snake River on the map, like where it's geographically located, I think that that's what helped me before our conversation today kind of get my idea around like how big an impact that area is on mm-hmm. just the this area in terms, it might be rather on 
fish and salmon fish that are going upstream and everything and because mm-hmm. it's it's huge yeah. that area just the intersection yeah. of it all mm-hmm. it's massive and there's a huge amount of potential there to restore this species to abundance and then you know not have to do a whole lot of work to protect it from the impacts of climate change in the future right uh, the habitat is just that good um, when you think about like the middle fork of the salmon river is like one of these world-renowned rivers that everybody wants to take a raft trip on right and that's because it's it's a wilderness river um there has not been a huge there has not been a huge amount of development on the middle fork of the salmon and so you know we see this big amount of pristine habitat still there um but that's also what leads us and fish biologists to know that the issue is not with the upstream habitat like even in this pristine place that has never you know very rarely been touched by people um the mm. salmon are not there. <laughs> um, wow. We went from having, you know, several thousand uh, reds or salmon nests in the, you know, even in the early 20th century up there to now just a few dozen, I think, last year. Maybe not even that. <laughs> oh, my uh, God. It, it, the issue is not with the upstream habitat, which is where a lot of the work and a lot of the funding has focused um, over the last you know, 30, 40 years. Um, and there's, it's been great work. It's done a lot to sort of reconnect habitat and restore rivers to sort of their, uh, a natural state that's better for fish. Um, but it hasn't resulted in the, the recovery that anybody thought it would. And so that's what leads all of us to know that the hydro system and the downstream impacts on the migration corridor are the real issues. Hmm. Well, so, so to kind of, wrap what we've talked about up a bit as much as we can at this point. Cause I mean, this is a huge, you could talk about so many different things. I mean, we're ta- we've talked about a little bit about hydropower and we've talked a little bit about, <laughs> I mean, cause these are cultural as what I like, I want to go back to what you had mentioned about. It's a cult. This is whole, this is a cultural thing. Um, and I think that cultural situation, how this all needs to be a cultural change. Um, that's what you're saying. It was, it's a cultural change. And that's why a lot of this is so interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, what all that makes me think about anyway, is, is the, the roots of culture and and a lot of the roots behind how we look at culture. And that's why I wanted to kind of mess with this last question, just kind of for fun. I don't know if you're familiar Mm -hmm. with Robin Wall Kimmerer or the book braiding sweetgrass at all. Yeah, I, I'm familiar. I will confess that I haven't read much of it. I think I made it about maybe 20 pages in. Before, that's that's um, totally, <laughs> totally I okay. Something else, or just, or just not being able to finish the book. I'm not sure what, but yes, I am. I am at least familiar with with the idea behind her work and and what the book is mostly about. Yeah. Great. Well, yeah, and and for those who have not read this, there's no homework required <laughs> for 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 what I'm about to say. But at one point in the book, it's just a wonderful. Wonderful book, by the way. I listened to the audiobook and it's her actually reading it. Fantastic. But um, so at one point in the book, she talks about the idea essentially of a society where, and just kind of, I love the wording of the question of like, what would this look like? Being the wording of a society which lives with the notion that community members aren't necessarily needing to be defined as human beings per se. And by community members, I'm not really talking about, you know, like we pay bills and we go to work and we go, <laughs> you know what I mean? We, we're we talking about beings, living creatures that we identify as those that deserve enough consideration when we're talking about 
building a hydropower dam and things like that. What goes through the planning process? You know, do we consider these creatures when we're doing all this? So she's kind of bringing about this idea of, hey, what would it look like if we had a society or a culture where that same kind of consideration and respect is looked at when it comes to like the trees and the cougars and the salmon? what what might that look like and it's very that kind of that kind of viewpoint and mentality is it, the sort of culture really was a lot more common and is a lot more common with a lot of indigenous cultures and tribes and things throughout history but it's been sort of been lost and so what what do you think that might look like in today's modern world just for fun in terms of considering <laughs> all these problems that we're addressing and because it is a cultural issue and I'm I'm wondering about these big cultural shifts like this that might allow us to look at these issues much differently than maybe we have. Yeah. I I really I actually really like this question for one um, because it's kind of <laughs> it is kind of at the nexus of what I think about all the time. Um, and you know, when you get involved in, in salmon, sure, but in any sort of natural resource issue, what you're fundamentally getting to the core of is how do we mix the ideas of ecology, um, the connections between living things, and economy, um, the, you know, call it the, the financial well-being of a community. We'll it's say. absolutely, um, it's definitely true. Those two worlds have to combine somehow, but how do we do it? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, it's about, and I, I I'll be the first to say that I don't have a definite answer, but I think that part of the big part, part of the shift needs to be a recognition of, you know, what is, or maybe a change in the definition of a keystone species, right? Mm. So what are, what are these, and it doesn't even need to be a species, but just an, an organism or a thing. Um, so in one case, it might be a uh, lodgepole pine um, or so, some other sort of like old growth forest uh, that was once, you know, harvested, uh, sort of without limits, um, but that led to the eventual destruction of ecologies and in the end destruction of economies because there weren't any more trees left, left to harvest, right? right? And in the same way, like salmon are a keystone species for not just the, the hundred and something other species that depend on them in places like the Middle Fork of the Salmon River, but also the dozens of communities that exist in rural Washington, Montana, Idaho, and Oregon that are to a large degree, dependent on reliable salmon and steelhead in a very, in a business way. There are outfitters and guides that will take people out to, to go and fish and harvest these, these species. There are people who will go to these places, not even to harvest them, but just to see them, to see a, you know, a four foot long fish <laughs> that has come back 900 miles from the ocean <laughs> up right. into central Idaho. You know, like that's a remarkable thing. <laughs> that, yeah. is a, that is a like central to the characteristics of the state of Idaho. Um, and then of course, I mean, there, there are the, there are the guides and outfitters and the tourist destinations, but there are also like, there are gas stations and grocery stores and restaurants and other things that all these people depend on as well. And so if you take away that fish aspect, that keystone aspect of the community, the thing that holds it all together, what do you have left? I mean, if you take the salmon away from a place like, I dare say, salmon, Idaho, like, what is left <laughs> of that place? <laughs> right. You know? If you take the salmon away from salmon, Idaho, what do you have? That's right. Yeah, and absolutely. So, you know, I, I think people just, I think we need a recognition that 
these fish and these other species are, you know, they're important ecologically, sure. And that's how you get you know, conservationists, conservationists to care about them. But I think they're also they're important to the character of the, the, the human side of these places too, right? Like we are dependent on these fish as well. Um, and sure, you know, there, there's, a, there's certainly a huge tribal connection to that. And so the tribes and tribal justice are central to this. But there's also just, there's something magical about these places that have these fish. And, you know, that's something, that's a characteristic that we don't want to lose because it holds the ecology together, but also because it holds the economy together. And those two things are fundamentally related. And I think that you can sort of take that same idea and apply it to a lot of other natural resource problems um, and use it to find solutions. In this case, you know, we need to restore abundant salmon and steelhead if we want to keep these ecologies and economies together. Um, it's that simple. <laughs> right. And the only, the only way that we can do that is by breaching these downstream dams um, and replacing them with something else, something that can be distributed all across the region. So, you know, one of my sort of pet project ideas is why don't we breach these dams and replace them with community solar or other renewable sort of generating stations everywhere across the Northwest and all the places that get this power now. That's not just like uh, providing the same amount of power. It's also an economic boon to some of these places, you know, provides jobs and revenue <laughs> um, from having it there for, for, you know, forever. Um, and also uh, it's a, it's a reliability thing, right? Like we have this system of aging centralized generators that are super, super uh, susceptible to uh, problems due to climate change or due to, you know, increased bad weather or whatever. And if you have that more distributed system that I'm talking about, you can clearly tell that I'm an energy nerd here. Um, <laughs> you have a more, you have a more reliable system then as well. You have something that is protected against earthquakes and hurricanes, etc. Um, things that might be all the more common <laughs> as we go through the next, you know, few decades. Right. Um, that's important. And that's important to these rural places as well. Absolutely. And I think, I just think there's so much opportunity there with with that context that contextualization of that re that I guess what I'm trying to say is that shift in perspective of how we value the area and land and creatures around us and I, I suppose the challenge I'm kind of having a hard time putting a finger on is like the is connecting the local plants and animals and everything and their value to the economy and the ecology, like what you were saying, um, that connection process for folks who maybe don't pay attention to things like this is, I think the main challenge folks have just kind of approached in different ways. And so a part of the reason that this is a big question for me is really just because not that we need to solve it or anything like that, cause I don't think we will, <laughs> but kind of, <laughs> But kind of just the idea of just like opening this thought process up of going, hey, you know, this has been done before and yeah. it's different than what we do now. Sure. But that doesn't necessarily mean it wouldn't work. It just means and it's not even necessarily proposing one and only one solution or anything like that. It's not even really a solution based question. It's more like a let's imagine what this might look like. And through that, maybe we can kind of play with the puzzle pieces a little bit <laughs> and kind of treat it sort of like kind of treat the system that we have right now sort of as like, you know, um, modifiable pieces of a whole system 
you know, we don't have to have all these things in the places that they are because they've worked. And that's the only reason why. But if we can imagine like what we want it to look like, it's I it seems to me that it would be at least a little bit easier to form the conversations around the specific things that need changing. Yeah, no. And I think, you know, just to put a plug in for, for Representative Simpson and what his proposal says, like he's the first one to get that or the first, you know, big elected leader in Congress to get that, I think. Hmm. Um, one of his, one of the first things he said was, you know, we all these things that we do on the rivers in the Northwest, we can do differently. We can generate power in different ways. We can um, move grain in different ways. We can irrigate in different ways. But salmon just need one thing, and that's a river. <laughs> and <laughs> at a certain point, they don't have it because they have these, you know, this big system of reservoirs and lakes instead that are not what they need. <laughs> and we have no other way to provide that. And so, you know, if we have these problems that can be solved with investment and that can be, we can create different solutions, then we should. I agree. Then we must because we have to save these fish. <laughs> yeah, I think it goes beyond the whole should thing. I mean, that's, that's I think... I, and I've even learned, and this is more, I suppose this is more of a social, cultural thing. And I think this is part of my, we're going to be doing, and by the way, um, for listeners as well as yourself, Mitch, you'll have to stay tuned on this. We're actually going to be doing uh, some some conversations based around environmentalism and how we don't really speak about blurring the lines between environmentalism and a lot of the concepts under the umbrella of environmentalism, like salmon and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, sure. It's what we often forget to do or just think that it isn't necessary to do perhaps is to cross over that border between the practical things like looking at land and, and everything and sort of the inner work involved in cultural change. And it's, it is interesting. I think how those lines don't tend to get blurred, but in order to look at huge cultural shifts, like big perspective shifts like that, many times it takes a lot of, you know, inner focus and things like, hey, because I, I truly believe, and this is a, a whole thing, whole subject point for a whole nother conversation, but I, I, I think there's something to the idea of how we treat ourselves and our bodies really does reflect how we treat our, our societies and the world that we live around, that we live in, um, and the people that are in our lives. I think that there's a relationship between how we treat ourselves and the people around us in our immediate vicinity versus how we treat our macro scale communities. And, and so, you know, <laughs> I'm resisting because this is, this is such an exciting thing to talk about. And, and uh, I think we're going to have some other guests and we're going to open this subject up more in future episodes. But, but this is really big. I mean, I think when we're talking about fish and we're talking about how to get to the center of the issue. I think there's something to that idea of treating ourselves in a way that mirrors how we treat society. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, like I mentioned at the top, like this is something, the main thing that inspired me to take this job in salmon is not because I have any like great affinity for fishing or anything like that. Like I wasn't, I, I'm not a fisherman much myself. Um, and I didn't really have like a deep connection to salmon, but like I said, like what I do have a connection for is to the Northwest. 
<laughs> right. Um, and the Northwest is, you know, you talk about these like cultural changes. And I think that the Northwest historically has been one of those places where those cultural changes sort of start <laughs> and emanate from, you know, like thinking about things like fair trade coffee or things like sustainable fisheries. Um, a lot of those ideas started right here in the Northwest. <laughs> it's totally true. Um, or, th- you know, things like carbon free energy. Like we are a leader in the country and in the world <laughs> on climate change right now. But the thing that has like continued to vex us for 150 years is the salmon issue. And it is just ridiculous to me that we cannot solve this. <laughs> right. that we haven't been able to over decades of conversation about it when everybody for at least 20 years has known exactly what needs to happen <laughs> to get these fish back. Um, you know, I like to think of the Northwest as a region for, for, for innovation and for new ideas um, and for doing what is necessary to solve problems. Um, and so that's why I work on this is because I want to create those solutions myself. Um, and I want to move us past this <laughs> into whatever new exciting thing is next, right? Like let's get these fish back and then think about, okay, what, what, what should the culture around this newfound abundance of fish be? <laughs> you know, how can we harvest them sustainably so that we have, uh, you know, conti- we continue to grow populations, but so that people, including tribal folks can have healthy diets. You know, um, how can we change our energy system to be both carbon free, but also ecologically responsible? You know, um, those are big questions and salmon (laughs) somehow find a way into all of them. It's true. Um, There's such a focal point. And I, I, I think maybe sometime in the future, a conversation surrounding how we define what a keystone species is might be rather interesting. Um, because you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned that earlier and I didn't stick on it because, but I definitely stuck on that in my brain because that could be a really interesting discussion about what dictates (laughs) the food chain and how that looks and how we dictate resources and, and local economies. And, oh, that would be an interesting talk. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, I mean, what holds, what holds together a community, both ecologically speaking, but also economically speaking, you know, and there are, there are keystone people out there too. <laughs> I'm Ooh, sure yeah. uh, in, community, in communities all over. Um, you know, this, this group that I was talking about at the front, Willow Resources, I think serves some of that role in Willow County. Um, they are something that holds the community together among other things, obviously. Um, but there is this role to be played and it's the same role to a degree that salmon play that wolves can play that beavers play um there's lots of examples of keystone species keystone people keystone organizations around um that are holding these places together um and how those how those things do that (laughs) is a really interesting question um and ensuring that those species and people (laughs) remain is also an important question um yeah well mitch i this has been an absolute blast. I'm, I wasn't sure, you know, especially having never spoken to you prior to this, it's you never sure how that's going to go. And <laughs> but it, um, I, I just have had a really, really genuinely great time talking about this with you. So before we go, I mean, what's next uh, for you? You told us a bit about the project that you're working on in, in regard to salmon. Is that essentially what you're involved in or what, where, where's the next space for you after you leave here today? <laughs> that, that is, that is the extent of my work right now. And let me tell you, it's enough. <laughs> it sounds like a lot. Um, it's one of our, I mean, we at ICL kind of have a few things going on at any one point in time, but salmon is certainly a focus for us right now. 
um, because of Mike Simpson's sort of recent effort on it, but also because of the political moment that we live in where, you know, who knows what happens in Congress next year, but we're trying to make action happen now. And because of, you know, the, the situation these fish are in, urgent, bold action is needed. And so we're, you know, applying all the resources and time that we can to, to solving this issue right away. Um, and that's really what we're pushing for. Um, most immediately, I guess what's coming up for me is, and this, unfortunately this is going to happen, I think, before this episode drops, is we've got a, like I said, sockeye salmon have been listed for 30 years, um, Snake River sockeye, that is. And so we're having kind of a vigil event to sort of observe that anniversary just this uh, this upcoming weekend in Boise. Um, oh, so, gotcha. You know, we're going to have some Shoshone Bannock tribal members there, among others, to talk about the work that they've done, uh, but also the need for real, for more action. <laughs> um and so that's going to be a really cool event, I think. And it's just, just a cool, like, sort of opportunity to tell this story to people all across the region. You know, it's been 30 years of work, and that work has been amazing, but it has not brought the results that anybody wanted. Yeah. <laughs> um, or that anybody expected, <laughs> you know. And so we need more. And so it is kind of that honoring the work, but call, but also calling to action for leaders all over the region. Um so that's what's on my plate this week, at least. Um, I think looking ahead towards 2022, like we're really trying to make that year the year of the salmon, if you will. Um, there's a lot of things going on in salmon and river world. Um, you know, uh, we didn't really talk about it, but there's dams on the Klamath River that are going to start being breached sort of in the end of 2022, early 2023. Um, um, there's a few different existing other pieces of legislation that would either protect or restore rivers um, in all across the West, but especially in the Northwest. Um, and we'd like Lower Snake River dam breaching and river restoration to be one of those things. Um, this would be the biggest river restoration in the history of the world. And we'd like to see that, you know, enacted in 2022. Yeah, um, let's do it. That that would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> and, then I can move on, and then I can move on to other interesting things. <laughs> yeah, now that's done. Well, so how can how can folks find you and get involved if they want to do that? Probably the easiest way is to go to our website, that's idahoconservation.org. Um, if you go to our sort of salmon and steelhead campaign page there, then there's a there's a take action button where you can, you know, do whatever we think at the time is most helpful on this issue. So that could be calling up uh, a congressperson or a governor or a senator or calling up the administration themselves um, or writing a letter to the editor or something else like that to really push the story out and push leaders to do something. Um, for salmon, for orcas, and for, for tribal justice as well. Those are our real focuses. And that's how that's how listeners can definitely help me out and help us out get this, get this issue solved. And that's it for today, folks. Remember, you can find Mitch and the work he's doing at idahoconservation.org. Look forward to the next episode coming Friday, December 17th. Be sure to subscribe and share. It really helps the show get out there and grow. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I've been Jet. This has been the Sustainable Culture Podcast. See you next time.